We are um, up to our second last week of a series we're currently doing, which is called Kingdom Questions. And we've been looking at, uh, as you know, if you've been part of this, questions in Mark's Gospel that Jesus asked, or that were asked of Jesus, that reveal uh, through the question uh, a truth about um, the Gospel and about who Jesus is and his ministry. And we've been focusing in this part of the series from this year on the very last week of Jesus' life. And uh, the last um, six messages have been set in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And as I've said in previous weeks, up to between a third and a half of the gospel content uh, is set out of Jesus' 33 years of life and three years of ministry. A third to a half is set just in the last week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. And so today is Palm Sunday, but I'm actually focusing on uh, the cross this morning as we look at the death of Jesus. And the question that Jesus asked, which was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or as Jesus spoke it in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting, Jesus said seven things on the cross, seven phrases or seven, we sometimes call them the seven words of the cross. Uh, Only one of them was a question and that is the question, why have you forsaken me? And it struck me this week as as I was thinking about preaching this message on um, and focusing on the cross on Palm Sunday that the start of the Easter week starts with palm branches that are being waved and and laid at Jesus' feet so that the, 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 the a donkey that he's riding can be uh, can step over them. It's a sign of honour, laying their cloaks and laying these branches. So it starts with branches that are being laid at Jesus' feet as a sign of honour. And it ends with Jesus being laid on a branch or on a cross. And uh, so it's a fascinating thing. So let's look at this passage. It's just a few verses that surround this question. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those uh, near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. The story is told of uh, in, in Poland in, communist, uh, in the communist era uh, that uh, the, the government of the Polish Prime Minister, Prime Minister Jaruzelski, had ordered crucifixes to be removed from classroom walls just as they had been from uh, banned in factories and hospitals and other public institutions. The Catholic bishops of Poland attacked the ban and stirred a wave of anger and resentment across all of Poland. Ultimately, the government relented, insisting that the law remain on the books, but agreeing not to press for formal removal of crucifixes, particularly in schoolrooms. However, one zealous communist school administrator 
decided that the law was the law. So one evening, he had seven large crucifixes removed from lecture halls in a school where they had hung since the school had been founded. Days later, a group of parents entered the school and hung yet more crosses. The administrator promptly took these crosses down as well. The next day, in response, two-thirds of the school's 600 students stage a sit-in. When heavily armed riot police arrived, the students were forced out into the streets and they began to march through the streets with their crucifixes held high. They marched to a nearby church where they were joined by almost 2,500 other students from nearby schools for a morning of prayer in support of the protest. Soldiers then surrounded the church. But the pictures from inside the church of the students holding the crosses high above their heads flashed around the world, as did the words of the priest who spoke that day and delivered a message to a weeping congregation. And his words were these, There is no Poland without a cross. And I, as we meditate on the cross this morning, as we dwell on the cross, I want to remind us that there is no church without the cross. There is no reason for us to gather without the cross. There is no forgiveness of sin without the cross. There is no hope and assurance of eternal life without the cross. There is no risen, victorious saviour to worship and praise without the cross. The cross stands at the centre of our faith and the centre of our lives. I read out a verse from Corinthians a couple of weeks ago that said this, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And you know what? So many out there today say that what we're doing right now is foolishness. Why gather on a Sunday morning to worship a guy who was crucified on a cross 2,000 years ago? That is foolishness. Or they say it is offensive that we would declare that this cross is so important that salvation comes through the Jesus who was crucified on this cross. They say that is offensive. And still today, this passage is being true in our world today. This message is foolishness or it is offensive. But to us who believe, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so we need to come and dwell on this cross and sit at the foot of the cross a couple of years ago, we hosted a concert on a Saturday night in this church. And uh, it was a concert by a musician, singer called Jules Riding, and he came and he was fantastic. But it was a very stressful night for me because I'd promoted this concert. And, and like normally church events that, that we run are really well attended. This one, really badly attended. Like practically no one turned up. Like seriously, if you were here and you were at that concert, raise your hands. Okay, three people. Okay. There was about, there was 17 people there for the, whole, for the whole concert. Five of them were my family members and they were going to go home because they were just young kids. I was like, you cannot leave. Um, someone else was visiting a friend of, who came just for the first 15 minutes and we were like, you cannot leave. Anyway, it was a great concert, but he shared his story. It was a, it was a story of brokenness largely and then, of then finding healing in the brokenness. It was actually a story of finding, experiencing brokenness and how he journeyed through that as a Christian. And he went through a stage in his life where he shared about how he'd, he'd uh, hit a really low point 
and, and everything had kind of gone completely bad. And he found a little church with a cross in it. And he would come into that church every day. He asked the, the, the pastor or the administrator or whoever, can I just come and sit in your church? And they said, yes, you can. And, he, and day after day, he would come into that church and he would sit at the foot of the cross and just, just be at the foot of the cross, just think, just reflect. And I think there's something very powerful about that. I think we need to keep coming back to the foot of the cross. Not physically, necessarily, literally to come and sit here day by day, but just to be bringing ourselves back before the cross, to remember the cross, to dwell on the cross, to think about the cross and what it means for us. We need to do that and not get away from it. You know, there's, there's churches now, you don't, I guess you don't have to have a physical cross in a church, but there is churches, I think, physically who don't have a cross anymore and somehow symbolically almost don't preach the cross anymore. We don't want to be like that. We want to have the cross front and centre as part of our message that we preach. And so this morning is about dwelling on the cross and coming back to that because it's so central, so important to us. Strangely enough, preaching at Easter and Christmas are the hardest times for a preacher to preach. Um, I, I, you probably don't feel sorry for me in that, but, um, uh, you know, just trying to raise up a little bit of sympathy for the preacher. Um, because it's such a familiar story. Because we know the story. Because we believe the story and we're telling the same story. And yet, um, uh, I think it's so important that we do that. So let me talk this morning as we think about this question to kind of set it in its framework. I want to talk about the, the suffering of Jesus. Because the message of the cross is a message of Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering for our forgiveness and our freedom. Christ's suffering for our forgiveness and our freedom. So I want to talk about the physical suffering of the cross the spiritual suffering Jesus experienced and the emotional, and then how that frames the cry that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The physical suffering of the cross is perhaps the most readily understandable or accessible to us, not that we'll ever fully understand it, but we can sort of grasp to some extent the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. Before Jesus was crucified, he went through a process called scourging or, or, or whipping. And in that process, Jesus was whipped with a leather whip that had a handle with leather straps attached to it. And then uh, embedded into that leather strap or attached to them was small pieces of metal or pieces of bone. So that as he was whipped, the metal and the bone would sink into the flesh and tear away at the flesh. This would expose the nerve endings under the flesh so that the process was exceptionally painful. It was so painful that there was a limit to the number of times someone could be uh, whipped because there was, uh, I guess, an accepted number that was considered the full number that beyond that it would be a fatal uh, whipping. And so Jesus was scourged prior to his crucifixion. Of course, this would have resulted in a huge loss of blood. He then had a crown of thorns. This was a unique thing that they did to Jesus as a way of mocking his claim to be the king of the Jews that was placed on his head. And as the thick, long thorns would have gone into his skull, it would have caused an extraordinary amount of blood loss. I don't know if you know that the skull is a place where there's a huge amount of blood flowing that feeds the brain. And so any piercing of the skin down to the skull produces huge blood loss. And then after this experience, of being beaten and being crowned with a crown of thorns. Jesus would have had uh, the crossbar of the cross tied to his shoulders with his hands tied to it. 
He would have then been lifted up and then told he needed to carry this cross out to the place where he would be crucified. We know from the scriptures and the story that Jesus fell a couple of times. He couldn't have even got himself up. He would have been so weak, so they would have lifted him up and got him to carry on. Eventually, he fell and could not stand up and could not be lifted up and, and continue. And so they grabbed another man, a guy called Simon of Cyrene, and they gave him the crossbar and said, you need to carry this because Jesus couldn't physically do that. After all of that, Jesus, of course, was laid on a cross and large metal spikes were placed through his hands and through his feet. They were probably placed around here rather than through the actual hand and on his feet. And Jesus was crucified. Crucifixion was not unique to Jesus to experience. It was a common way of execution. But it was a particularly cruel means of execution. It was a means so barbaric that Roman citizens could never be crucified. They were exempt from crucifixion. It was considered below them. No matter what their crime, if you were a Roman citizen, you could never be crucified. The word excruciating is a word that is directly derived from crucifixion. Ex meaning out of, uh, cruce, crucified. Out of, out of crucifixion comes excruciating pain. And one of the cruel parts of crucifixion was that as, as the person being crucified slowly became weaker and weaker, their body would move forward and this leaning forward would put weight on their lungs and would, would re restrict their ability to breathe. And of course, when you can't breathe, the body cries out for breath, which would cause the person to push back and to raise up, which would allow them to take a breath. But in doing that, that would cause an even greater agony. So the, the loss of breath agony, pushing back, causing agony on the hands and the feet and on the body, and then slowly going forward again, losing breath, this repeated process over and over. Meanwhile, the body is losing more blood, is going into shock. And sometimes they'd put a small seat there which would draw out the process, sometimes lasting more than 24 hours, even a couple of days. It was likely for Jesus this wasn't done because they wanted the process to be quick because it was the Passover the next day and they needed the crucifixion to take effect quickly. This physical pain that Jesus went through was extraordinary. And yet in many ways, it was the least of the pain Jesus experienced on the cross. Because Jesus on the cross was bearing a spiritual pain that was greater than the physical pain. It's interesting, there's all these threads in the Old Testament to the New Testament story of the crucifixion. In Exodus chapter 10, it, desc it describes the seventh or the second to last plague that Jesus gave to the Egyptians as a way of judging them. In Exodus 10, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And this is a really interesting thing, because when we get to this story, it says that uh, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. See, just as Jesus brought a judgment on the Egyptians, that was a three days of darkness, now Jesus, uh, God brings a judgment on Israel for three hours. And yet the judgment or the punishment for the judgment of Israel rejecting the Saviour is not going to be borne by the people of Israel. It's going to be borne by Jesus on the cross. And so the very next 
plague that, G, that God poured out as a judgment on Israel after the plague of darkness was the death of the firstborn. And it's interesting we see this paralleled here that after the darkness comes the death of Jesus, of God's, the Father's firstborn, one and only Son, Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, sort of describing for us what's happening here in the simplest terms. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so at the time of the Passover, which is being celebrated when Jesus dies, but not by coincidence, when, the, when everyone bought the lamb, the perfect lamb to be slain as part of this long history of the sacrificial system, that people's sin could be uh, washed away by the blood of a perfect lamb bought and the lamb would take place. Jesus becomes the one and only, the perfect, the ultimate sacrificial lamb. See, the way scripture works together, I just find it absolutely fascinating. If you looked at the story of God bringing in the law about forgiveness of sin coming by the death of a perfect lamb, you'd say this sacrificial system, you know, surely isn't going to go on forever. Surely there's going to be a, a kind of a once and for all sacrifice. But who on earth could be that? Well, no person could because no person is perfect. So God then brings in himself coming into the world in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice that none of us could ever be or no one or nothing could be. And he becomes the lamb that is slain on the Passover for the forgiveness of our sin once and for all. Isaiah 53 says it this way, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken, by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so in the midst of this excruciating physical pain, Jesus is carrying a greater weight, which is the weight of our sin. And I know that you know this, if you've been in church for a while, but we need to hear this again. That on the cross, God the Father brought all his wrath and judgment and put it on God the Son, Jesus, who bore it in his body. As someone succinctly put it, he came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. He came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt he couldn't pay. But in addition to the physical suffering of Jesus and the spiritual suffering of Jesus, there's a suffering that I think is actually what this cry is mostly about. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the emotional suffering that Jesus experienced. First, there was the emotional suffering that came from rejection and being despised. Uh, Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. I don't if, you know if you know the feeling of what it is to be insulted, despised or rejected. There's an old saying which says, sticks and stones can break my bones but words will... Never hurt me. What an absolute load of rubbish. Those who have experienced what it is to be rejected, 
carry with them a wound that is deep. Those who have been despised, those who have been insulted, those who have been scorned, those who have been mocked, those things are powerful and on Jesus while bearing the sin of the world and while dealing with the physical suffering of the cross deals with the fact that while he's hanging on the cross people continue to mock him, insult him and reject him. But that suffering is again pales into significance to a greater emotional suffering that happens and that is what's captured in this question. Jesus cries out, My God! My God. And it's interesting if we look through the Gospels, how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He doesn't say, pray, my God. He says, pray, Father. And see, Jesus knew God, his Father, God the Father as his Father. And God, Jesus has this intimacy, Father, Son, and Spirit. We know this, this Trinity, God, God, God in three persons, where there is the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit. There's just this mutual love and communion and partnership and dwelling together that's never been broken for all of eternity. And when Jesus comes into the world in human flesh, he is continually in communion with his Father. He's continually going away just to be with his Father. When you see that he's like, in times of prayer, in times of significance, he's praying to his Father. And he's teaching others to pray to his Father. And yet now, in his moment of greatest need, Jesus, for the one and only time, experiences a separation where he becomes a sacrificial lamb being judged and punished by God the Father who is acting as a just judge. And it's really fascinating, and I won't go into it, this whole question about where is the Father when Jesus is judged? Is he sort of with Jesus as well? These questions are hard to know the answer to, but what we do know is we know Jesus is bearing the sin of the world, and we know that God the Father is a just judge who is judging in that moment. And so Jesus cries out, not Father, He cries out, my God, my God. And then he asks a question that is so powerful. Why? My God, my God. Why? Why have you forsaken me? And I guess that cry is echoed these days through the experience that many people have. Many people have hit a point in their life, an experience in their life, a tragedy, a grief, a crisis where you maybe have cried out this very same question or something very similar to it. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why have you allowed this to happen? And when Jesus cries out this cry, I'm not sure if you're aware, but he's actually quoting scripture. Jesus at the very start of his ministry when he's in the wilderness quotes scripture. At the start of his ministry when he preaches his first sermon quotes scripture. Most, many of Jesus' words far more than we often realize he's actually quoting scripture. And here he quotes Psalm 22 verse 1 which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The writer David uh, is the words that Jesus speaks is actually the words of David in an experience he had. And David said this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I do not find rest. He's praying, My God, I know that you're powerful. And I know that you exist. 
and I know that you're there. So why aren't you coming to save me? I guess that's the experience that sometimes we feel like God is, is not hearing us or not answering us and we ask why. Some of the hardest and most brutal experiences of my ministry are to sit in my office or sit with someone across from someone who says, Mark, why? Just tell me why. Why is this happening? Jesus uh, the psalm goes on to say, verse 3, says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. What it's saying is, Yet I know not only do you hear me, and not only do I know you're powerful, but I know you're holy and right, that you are righteous, that you do the right thing. And then it goes on to say, In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered. You delivered them. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. But now I'm crying out, and I'm still in shame, and I haven't felt your rescue. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's interesting in the, uh, the Aaronic blessing, uh, an ancient blessing in Deuteronomy, it says, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. It's this idea of like when God looks upon you, there's this light, there's this God is light. And so when he looks upon you, his face shines upon you. But now darkness covers the earth. And Jesus is surrounded by this darkness. To forsake someone is to leave them entirely. It is to abandon them. It is to give them, to give up. Often in a time when someone needs you the most. My God my God, why have you forsaken me? It's Jesus' cry in that moment. I think there's some things that we take out of this. And I'm just going to point out three. There's so many. The first is, is that when we experience suffering and when we feel like where is God and why is this happening, there's one thing importantly that we need to know. There's three things we need to know. The first is this. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. If you are suffering, if you have suffered, if in time you hit a point in your life, the suffering you experience, you do not experience alone. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Jesus has been there. There are some who will come alongside you and say, when you are suffering, I know what you're going through. But they don't. They don't know what you're going through. But actually, Jesus knows what it is to suffer, suffering beyond anything that any human can experience. Secondly, because Jesus was forsaken in that moment, we need to know that we never will be forsaken. Because it was placed on Jesus, we need to know that God will never forsake us. And there's this thread through the whole of Scripture where God promises he will never leave us, nor forsake us. That's Deuteronomy or in Joshua. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus promised, I will never leave you. I will be with you always. And if you are feeling that God has forsaken you, if you are feeling that God is distant from you in suffering, and sometimes we feel that, but I've got to tell you, Jesus is not far from you, that God is with you. And if, he, if you wanted to listen to what God has to say to you, then this would be his words to you. My child, my child. I have not forsaken you and I will never forsake you because Jesus took it all on the cross. 
I will never turn my face away from you. And in suffering, you need to know that God loves you and that he is faithful and that he is with you. And no matter what you feel in the crisis, God has not abandoned you and he never will abandon you. Third thing to say is that grace is the greatest gift. Grace is the greatest gift. When we understand the suffering of Jesus on the cross and what he bore, when we understand that he cried out to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are reminded that God is a just judge, but we are the ones who were worthy of that judgment. Yet Jesus has taken our place. The cry he cried, we will never cry. When we stand before God as judge, we will not cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we will know the embrace and the love and the forgiveness of a gracious and compassionate God because Jesus gave his life for us. The cross is God's way of uniting suffering with love. What a great tragedy it is in our world that Jesus has made a way for forgiveness, for new life, for salvation and for freedom. Yet so many reject him and don't cast themselves on him. And I would want to say, because we're putting this out on the live stream and because we put this out on the podcast, and I know people, uh, this message sort of goes far and wide, way beyond these walls. And it's very likely that someone will hear this message who has not yet given their life to Jesus and entrusted Jesus for their salvation. I would want to say, do not hold back the greatest gift that Christ has paid the price for your sin and for my sin and for the sin of every person in this world because every single person falls short of the glory and the holiness and the perfection of God. And Jesus came to deal with that because we never could do that on our own. And yet Jesus says simply, trust in me, put your faith in me, give your life to me and say, I will trust you and follow you and admit that I need your forgiveness and salvation. And when anyone cries out to Jesus, he doesn't wait and he doesn't say, now jump 10 hurdles and do this and that and prove yourself to be a good person. He says, you've cried out to me and I'm here for you and I've saved you. That's grace. That's why we sing about amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I told you a story at the start of, uh, about the concert we held that very few people came to. One of the songs that was sung uh, in that concert was a song that was, uh, was grew out of the experience of Jules sitting at the foot of the cross day after day. It's a song called Because of the Cross. And he started studying all the passages where the outcomes and the benefits and the meaning and significance of the cross are expressed. And he wrote this song, which I'm going to share with you by speaking it, not singing it. He said, because of the cross, all things are possible. Because of the cross, Christ lives in me. Greater is he who's in me than he who is in the world. Because of the cross. Because of the cross. Because of the cross, I am always loved. Because of the cross, I am always blessed. I am complete. I am established in righteousness because of the cross. It is well with my soul. Because of the cross, it is well with my soul. 
Because of the cross, I can forgive others. Because of the cross, I am healed. I can tread on snakes and scorpions and trample over all the power of the enemy because of the cross. Because of the cross. Because of the cross, I have abundance. Because of the cross, I have favor with God. I have nothing to fear. I have love and a sound mind. Because of the cross, it is well with my soul. Because of the cross, it is well with my soul. Because of the cross, I belong in heaven. Because of the cross, I renew my strength. Sin has no power over me. I defeat the enemy of death. Because of the cross, because of the cross. Because of the cross, there is hope for the future. Because of the cross, there is light in the darkness. I will boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Because of the cross, it is well with my soul. Let's pray as the band come up. Heavenly Father, I pray for every person here this morning, for every person who hears this message at 9 o'clock, for every person who's watching on the live stream, for every person who's listening in time to this podcast, that they would be able to say, because of the cross, it is well with my soul. Through all the experiences and all the struggles and all the suffering that we will experience at different times in our life, yet despite all of that, that we might say it is well with my soul because we know that because of the cross, we are not forsaken. Because of the cross, we have a heavenly Father who is with us. Because of the cross, we have a living Saviour who has conquered death and we celebrate that next Sunday and He is with us. Because of the cross, we have a Spirit dwelling in us and at work in us and through us. Because of the cross... We live in a victory that came at great cost because of the cross. It is well with my soul. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app. 